According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 14. We were not here last week. That's, I was sick last week, right? So it's been two weeks since we were here. Yeah, I had the flu for about eight days and then uh, transitioned from the flu to cedar. And I'm not exactly sure where one stopped and the other began, but somewhere in there. All right, Proverbs 14. And uh, we've been looking at uh, this triplet of verses in 7, 8, and 9. And we're uh, trying to tie that together. We've got two final issues to deal with because there's six parts of these verses, an A and a B to each, uh, each verse. Uh, leave the presence of a fool or you will not discern words of knowledge. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, but the foolishness of fools is deceit. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. And so this is what we're looking at here. Verse 9 really is the last verse we haven't gotten to yet. So the first half, the second half, we're going to cover them under subpoints E and F, and uh, then we'll be ready to move on to verses 10 and following. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask God to set aside our distractions and ask Him to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this new year and the blessings you've unfolded, Father. Uh, thank you for Sunday night and a good start that we got to our new format. We pray for the additional teachers that are preparing even now for their debut. And I want to thank you for Bill Kelly and his first time. And uh, in all these things, Father, it's just a, a thrill and a joy to see how faithful you are. And Father, we, uh, we're eager for the new year now and all the things in front of us, including uh, all these Wednesday mornings in the book of Proverbs. Thank you for being so faithful. Uh, we call upon your faithfulness yet again, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding and to equip us that which is pleasing in your sight. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, basically now uh, we've been in the midst of point six all this time. A triplet of verses contrasting foolishness and wisdom contains the first imperative in the personal and public wisdom portion of Proverbs. And so that first imperative since going way back to chapter 9, remember uh, chapters 10 through 24 is this section here of personal and public wisdom. Uh, and when you're talking to kids, there's a lot of commands, a lot of orders, a lot of imperatives in the parental wisdom portion, scads of imperatives. But we haven't seen an imperative since we left chapter 9 until we get to 14.7 leave the presence of a fool. And that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a helpful hint. It's not a good idea. It's an order. Leave the presence of a fool. Or the consequence, you will not discern lips of knowledge, words of knowledge. All right, and so we have uh, the subpoints A and B that came from verse 7. Actually, I took those backwards. You might remember we did 7B first under A before we did 7A under point B. And then point C and D uh, is where we detailed verse 8, the A and B part there. God's wisdom provides a practical benefit for charting a course forward. That's uh, verse 8a, the wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way. 
And what a delight to have that chart forward already uh, identified to recognize and say, I know where I am, I know who I am, I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm going. And uh, to recognize all these things as a facet of what God has blessed us with. And this is our privilege in the body of Christ. Uh, really any believer from any dispensation. This is not a church age truth here. This is, this is timeless. Uh, applied by the Jews in, in their stewardship, applied by Gentiles in their stewardship, obviously applied by the church today in our stewardship. It'll have application in the tribulation, millennium, and, and beyond. The new heavens and new earth will have application here as well. The wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way, Proverbs 14, 8 and verse 8. I think it's a very practical benefit. So while you and I know the who, what, where, when, why, and how, you and I are very clear in the sense that, all right, I'm a believer priest, I'm a church age believer priest, uh, I'm a gifted pastor teacher, I've been entrusted with the ministry of, of, the, of uh, Austin Bible Church. And so uh, my, my course forward is, is fixed, it's charted, it's clear, I have direction, I know who I am, why I am, where I'm going, what I'm doing. Day by day I'm walking with the Lord, I'm, I'm listening to His voice, uh, I'm growing, I'm feeding the flock, I'm being ministered to by my flock. All these things are happening and, and my, my course forward, I, I'm not living in this, in this uh, what if world or this or that or fear or trembling. Whereas the fool on the other hand is 8b, he lies to himself. The foolishness of fools is deceit. Okay? The foolishness of this world is a lie. And they're okay with that. They love that. They would much rather live in the lie. They would much rather live in the lie, you know? And to me, I don't know if it's a good illustration or not, but I think about, do you ever watch the old, um, when I was a kid, the, the, uh, the, uh, on, after Sesame Street was Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers came on public television. And, uh, and one of his big deals was um, the land of make-believe, Right? And he said, oh, it's time to go to make-believe, you know, so of course he changed shoes and put a sweater on and then he went and he sat down next to the thing and here comes the train. And then it's time to go now to the wonderful land of make-believe, okay? And I think that's a good metaphor for God's wisdom versus the world's wisdom versus divine viewpoint and human viewpoint, right? The way that we look at the world and then the way that the fool looks at the world. And we're talking about every unbeliever on the planet, but sadly we're also talking about carnal believers. We're talking about our own brothers and sisters who should know better. But they're not living in the Word of God, they are living in darkness, and they are pursuing the same foolishness that the unbeliever is pursuing. And so that foolishness of the world, it is a lie. It is a total lie. But sadly I think too many of our brothers and sisters are happy there. They would much rather occupy with, with the land of make-believe, living in this dream world where, hey, you can do what you want to do, be your own God, there's no consequences for sin. Uh, you know, just live in this wonderful land of make-believe as if, you know, there is no God or if there is, he's not paying attention and I can get away with what I'm getting away with. Because carnal believers enjoy carnality <laughs> and they want to prolong it. And so, yes, it's a lie. But fools prefer it for their course forward. Anyway, so there's the passages there. And we looked at that uh, two weeks ago, um, I believe. Did we get through this whole list two weeks ago? I think we did. All right. So now for E and F then we can wrap up uh, verse 9. Fools mock at sin, but among the upright there is goodwill. There is a delight, a ratzon. And uh, we get some more ratzon studies today 
that we've done already, and we'll do more, many more, I'm sure. But we start, first of all, with fools mocking at sin and having fun with it, playing with it, toying with it. And uh, we know what mocking is. And in fact, we probably know better than any other generation in the history of mankind, it seems, that our generation is, is specializing in mocking, political mocking and, and entertainment mocking and all kinds of mocking. And now with social networking, we can take mocking to a whole new level. Uh, fools mock the consequences of sin. So point E, uh, not only do we have this here in, in, in Proverbs 14, 9a, but we also have a myriad of illustrations throughout the Scriptures. No shortage of illustrations. And this is the thing, when you have hardened your heart, when a person has hardened their heart so much, okay, this is why sin becomes so destructive. We're not just talking about an individual sin and then you keep a short account and you repent of that sin because you're under conviction. And so then you confess it and you're restored to fellowship. That person is not mocking at sin. That person's not a fool, okay? That person's actually walking in wisdom because they're confessing sooner rather than later and they're getting back in fellowship as quickly as they, as they get convicted. So we're not talking about that. But the fool mocks at sin and he plays with it, he enjoys it, he delights in it. His heart is so hardened that even when the discipline starts, he keeps going. He says, all right, I'm fine with that. All right, that's great. And they start to mock sin. They start to mock God's divine discipline like, oh, that didn't hurt. Like, oh, well, all right, it's a price you pay for having fun. And uh, there is a carnality price to be paid. And those that are so hardened in their heart, they actually boast about paying that price. And uh, we have it illustrated, of course, in experience. We see it all around us, but then we have the Scripture that talks about it as well. And clearly we've got to teach our doctrine from the Scripture, not from experience. So we start with Genesis 4. We start with Genesis 4 and we see this, I mean, right off the bat. Generation 1 and Generation 2. How long does it take to teach this principle? <laughs> okay. All right. So what do you think of when you think of Genesis 4? You have uh, chapter titles memorized, and Genesis 1 and 2 is creation, Genesis 3 is the fall, Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel, right? Genesis 5 and 10 are genealogies, we don't go into that. Genesis 6, 7, and 8 is the flood, Genesis 9 is the rainbow and capital punishment, uh, Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. Uh, you learn those when you, when you do your Bible walkthrough evangelism classes. Um, but Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. Okay, so we have sin, and in the next generation we have murder. Okay, and uh, in the context here, we have to back up slightly because verses twenty-three and twenty-four are the are the uh, the key verses. But the, the the backdrop for that comes earlier when Cain murders Abel, and uh, verse nine, the Lord comes to Cain and says, uh, "Where is Abel, your brother?" And he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? And I think God is just so faithful here coming and looking for the repentance, looking for the confession. He's not ignorant. It's like with Adam and Eve back in chapter 3, he wasn't ignorant. He goes to Adam and says, where are you? So we have this pattern and it's repeated. He goes to Cain and he has a question, where's your brother? He doesn't ask, where are you? He says, where's your brother? Anyway, um, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Remember, two things will defile the ground. And, and uh, bloodshed is one of those two things. And uh, so with the ground uh, defiled and that voice crying out, God comes down and, and deals with it. Uh, verse 11, 
Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And so Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Now that's an attitude, that is a perspective, and common I would think. Uh, when you're under God's divine discipline you think that's too much, I can't handle that. Okay, And th- notice how different that is from what we're going to see later in the chapter, what we're going to see in his son and the, uh, the intensification of, of reversionism. So uh, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me from this day from the face of the ground and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Remember, there's more than four people on the planet at this time. There were other sons and daughters besides Cain and Abel. Uh, there was, who knows, we don't really know the, the number of children that they had. And when you're living centuries, how many babies can you have? <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, here's the grace that God puts in. You know, divine discipline with mercy. It's amazing how faithful our Lord is. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Now this is the mercy of God. This is God's mercy. There will be consequences for murder. There's consequences for shedding man's blood, and that is your blood must be shed. But God puts parameters on there so that humanity is not uh, left just, uh, you know, perpetuating the uh, the sinful bloodshed. Right? We don't have endless. Uh, vengeance, because you, you have vengeance, and then you have to have vengeance for the vengeance, and you have to have vengeance for the vengeance for the vengeance, and you get these tribes that have you know tribal warfare and clan warfare for centuries, right? For millennia, we have that, and uh, and so God built this in. All right, He's going to put a stop to that. We're not going to have that revenge motive. It's going to be uh, the, the the sword is going to be given to the state. Caesar bears the sword and not for nothing, all right? He is the minister of God's wrath, the minister of God's judgment. It's, it's, it's handled uh, through government agency, not through volition, marriage, family, the, the first three laws of divine establishment. It's only through government then that capital punishment is mandated. Anyway, um, this, is, this is what's happening here. So it, it uh, provides a consequence, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And so this is God's assigned wrath, that if someone tries to solve murder with murder, their discipline is sevenfold. All right. And so the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. It was a mark or a sign. And we don't even know what it looked like. We don't know what it was. Okay. It's uh, whatever it was. It was was evidently, um, you know, visible enough. It wasn't, you know, a, a tattoo maybe on his forehead. Who knows? If it was, uh, you know, it had to have been in a, on a, some kind of a basis, you know. And we, and we don't know. We honestly, it doesn't say. There's a lot of Jewish legends, rabbis had traditions and whatever. Uh, a bunch of racists came in and said, well, this is what turned people black. Okay, that was a dumb theory from years ago. But somehow, uh, you know, black people were the descendants of Cain and they were cursed and whatever, whatever. Okay, stupid stuff. Now, all of that's the backdrop for the next generation. So um, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He had relations with his wife, one of his sisters, because there were other sons and daughters. Okay, um, She conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city, called the name of the city Enoch. 
Now we've got to count these generations because I said it was his son, but it's not his immediate son. So there's Cain, there's Enoch, there's Irad, there's Mahujael, there's Methushael, then there's Lamech. Now this is the bad Lamech, okay? There's another Lamech in Noah's line, but here's, here's the Cain Lamech in the sixth generation. And Lamech took for himself two wives. Now he may not have been the first polygamist, but he's the first one mentioned. All right, and so that's a clue. Um, took to himself two two wives. Why would he do that? <laughs> Did it seem like a good idea at the time? I mean, what? Why would he do that? Has, has, has that ever happened before? Adam had one wife. Cain had one wife. All these people had one wife, and then all of a sudden, six generations into the history of mankind, um, we have this fellow who has a different way of thinking from God. And that's going to be very clear. So he's going to take two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. And I'm sure, you know, he thought he was fine with this. This is just an alternate lifestyle and who are you to judge? And we'll just have some polygamy pride parades and, you know, whatever else. But God designed one man, one woman, the two shall become one flesh, not the three or the four or the however many, the two shall become one flesh. All right. And Ada gave birth to uh, Jabel, his brother's name, and then, okay, so we get past that. Now, Lamech said to his wives, plural, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me. Now, he's, he's a murderer, and he's boasting about it. All right, so how hard is the heart at this point? See, it's, it's not just a, a sin that he's remorseful for and he repents of and what he's proud to have done it. And he's openly defiant against God's judgment. So I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. Now it's either multiple murder, two different victims, or one victim that was apparently so easy to kill that he just mocks him and calls him a boy, as as the case may be. Uh, you can read it either way and different debates, different rabbi, uh, you know, Jewish legends and whatnot. So I've killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, so he knows the scriptures, <laughs> right? He knows what the Bible, no, no Bible yet, but he knows what the word of God says. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77fold. You, you see how ugly this is, how defiant, how demonic, how just uh, I dare you, I double dog dare you, you know, 77 fold. And he is in such vehement defiance against God. And so there it is. Um, One of the uh, one of the uh, I think the most believable legends that's that's recorded and the rabbis held to it and taught it um, that the, his victim was Cain. He, he murdered Cain, his, his own forefather, his own ancestor, who, who would have still been alive. Uh, you know, Adam was still alive up through the ninth generation. Noah was the first generation that was not, uh, was not contemporaneous with Adam. Adam lived 930 years after his fall. Anyway, um, so the tradition was that Cain was still alive and Cain is the one that, that Lamech murdered. And that, he, that was... Uh, 
a political thing and a, and a defiance of God thing and other aspects like that. Um, all right. And then, uh, by the way, as long as I'm here, verse 25, um, Adam had relations with his wife again. Okay? Why is that being mentioned? <laughs> again? All right. Um, but backing up, see, I think it's uh, key because in, in 5.1 we know that there were other sons and daughters, right? Um, does it bother you that this is all out of order? We're so sequential and Hebrew thought is not sequential. So when you look at, at chapter 5 verses uh, 3 through 5, we've got the whole story on Adam. So we have the Toledoth of Adam here. 5.3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became a father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years. He had other sons and daughters. So that's the, that's the, the backdrop there. He had other sons and daughters. How many? How many boys can you have? How many girls can you have? When uh, this one comes along and you're, uh, you're already 130 <laughs> and you're going to live for uh, 800 more years after that and you're going to have other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. So that's the, that's the math that we have in chapter 5. Okay? But Seth is the one mentioned because Seth is the one that gives us Abraham. Seth is the one that gives us Jesus and that's the line of Christ. We don't care about the line of Cain or the line of Abel or the other lines that were, that were clearly there. Um, we're just getting down here to, uh, to Noah and then to uh, Abraham in chapter 5. So um, back to the earlier verses. Uh, verse 1, the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And um, again, verse 2, again she gave birth to his brother Abel. So verse 1, verse 2, this is why they were believed to be twins, right? There's only the one relations mentioned in verse 1. There's only the one conception mentioned in verse 1. There's a birth mentioned in verse 1. And then there's an again birth mentioned in verse 2. And so that was a fairly universal tradition among the the uh, the, the rabbis, that uh, the Jewish commentary on this, that they were twins, one conception, twin births. Anyway, then in the course of time, other sons and daughters, of course, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering, Abel brought an offering. These are adult sons. I believe they are married adult sons, possibly with their own children. We have no way to know, but they are adult sons. And, but they're the only ones we have names for. And so I think, and of course Cain murders Abel and on they go. Um, but then in verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. Now here's the reason. For God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. So the name Seth means appointed or, or, or uh, placed, appoint. I think um, that this is an appointed son as a replacement. And my theory, my tradition, my belief is that that they were done with all their other children. That they had however many, they had 20, they had 50, they had 100. How many they had? We don't know. But they had all their children and then they stopped. They stopped, right? And then we have generations and generations and generations and generations and who knows? 
what, what year this was that, that, that Cain murdered Abel. But then after the death of Abel, then one more birth. One more birth, okay? Possibly, you know, in their old age. Well, it was at age 130 that he gave birth to Seth, okay? As an appointment. And, and the Bible is making that point specifically. And I don't want to belabor it, but since the Bible is making the point specifically, I want to make the point specifically. That uh, because they had other sons and daughters, Seth is different than the rest of them. Okay? Otherwise, it, you know, okay, our kid was killed, but here's another baby. You know, it's just another one along a line. You know, and there's going to be another one after that. There's going to be another one after that. There's going to be a long string of babies. But no, this one seems to be separate. This one is specifically given as a, in place of or in, in the stead of Abel, his brother. So, um, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Then to Seth, to him also a son was born, and uh, he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So we have corporate worship as soon as there are three generations to do so. All right, side trip, apologize for that. But the, the, uh, I mean, there's just a ton that you can get in, uh, in Genesis uh, 4. And Genesis 5 related to that. John, did you have a question? Yes. Well, it is. It's, it's, it's the same language from creating man in the image of God, in the image of God, in the likeness of God. And so the, the image of God is still in humanity even after the fall. And the image of God coming through fathers to sons in the father's image to the son is still image of God. Right. Yeah, yeah. But any, any human is in the image of God even after the fall. Yeah. All right. Anyway, back on outline. Fools mock the consequences of sin. And so there's Lamech, clearly mocking. Clearly mocking. Hey, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'm, I'm going to be avenged seventy-sevenfold. And, uh, and there you have it. Uh, Psalm 10, another good example. Go to the Psalms. Psalm 10. Boy, sticky pages today. There we go. Probably a continuation of Psalm 9. Um, some Hebrew manuscripts link them together, and Septuagint, I think, links them together. But in any event, whether or not it's Davidic or not, um, verse 1 of Psalm 10 says, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And so a very common lament by a believer who's trying to walk right is looking around him and he's seeing a bunch of renegades, Okay? A bunch of unbelievers and a bunch of believers who should know better. And those reversionistic believers are just living the life of a fool and they seem to be getting away with it. And it bothers them to see them getting away with it. So why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. You know, how much of David's life was spent running from Saul who kept plotting his, his demise. 
For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. So there's the combination with the boasting. And the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And you know, when you've hardened your heart to this point, we're talking about believers now that are saved by grace through faith that should know better, but have spent so much time now in darkness that functionally, they're, they're functional atheists, really. You know, as far as they're acting, as far as they're living, as far as the things they're doing, they act as if there is no God. They act as if they don't believe He's even there or that there is such a thing. Or, okay, maybe we admit there is a God, but He's not paying attention. All right? He's really rather irrelevant to how I'm living my life right now. His thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times, or at least they seem to be. That's the external. And Satan, this world, will definitely cover that up. All the press coverage is going to be positive. All the the cosmos uh, uh, powers of darkness are going to really uh, describe that as an amazing thing. And then to all appearances, this is, this, is, this is a thrill. You want to live this life. This guy's got it made. So uh, your judgments are on high out of his sight. That's what I was talking about. Okay, maybe there is a God, but he's not even paying attention. It's out of sight. He's not looking. He's so way up there and kind of uninvolved, and we're just down here, and he's not really paying attention anyway. As for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. We've talked about nostrils and snorting, and there's a fun Hebrew idiom. He says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. And he builds up this security that he thinks he's stable. His mouth is full of curses and deceits and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. You know those places? Stay out of those places. <laughs> okay? Those dodgy parts of town. What are you doing in those parts of town? Stay away from there. Those uh, business establishments, don't even go there. What are you doing there? And... Uh, in the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. Always looking for the next victim. And in not content with where he is and what he's doing, there's always another victim. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. You know, you want to pick off the sick one, obviously. You want to pick off the weak one. Grab a believer when he's, you know, kick him when he's down. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. So his mighty ones, look at that. David assembled a, a group of mighty men. So is this guy. He's got lackeys. He's got a gang. He, he's going to run with a crowd. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. He will never see it. Um, a few more verses. We'll go down through verse 15. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require it. There's no accountability, there's no judgment day. All there is is this life anyway, so 
You have seen it, you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. So break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. And this is what uh, the psalmist is calling for. He's leaving himself in God's hands. He wants God to deal with all this wickedness that he sees. Okay. Uh, So there's boasting of mocking the consequences of sin. Also in Psalm, Psalm 94. This gets pretty personal, you know, and we've got family members that are walking in darkness and have been for some time now. They know better. They know better. They're believers. They've had teaching in the past. They may not remember much of it, but the Holy Spirit can bring it out of the deep crevices of their darkened soul. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? Now, I want to just remind ourselves here, we're church-age believers, and this, uh, many of the psalms have um, imprecatory uh, psalms. They have requests for wrath and judgment and recompense and so forth. Um, ours are tempered uh, by the sense that in the New Testament we learn that recompense comes at the second advent of Jesus Christ and that the church age is the intensified stage of the angelic conflict and that uh, wheat and tares grow up together until the harvest. And, and so um, it's, it's inappropriate. We, we, we may want to pray the imprecatory prayers, but that's not the context for the church age. The recompense uh, will come in the second advent, will come uh, at the, during the, the, the tribulation. And so, you know, David was very fond of, of expecting to see some of these things happen in his lifetime. We may not. We may not see these things happen in our lifetime. And so uh, we want to adjust our prayers dispensationally so that we're accurate on that. All right. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour forth words, they speak arrogantly. So here's the mocking, mocking the consequences of sin. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. Self-promotion, outdoing one another, boasting about the, the great sins that they can do. They can out the next sinner. Vaunting themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. You know, why are they not content with their own sin? Why do they insist on now imposing on the godly that doesn't want to be a part of that sin? Okay, you will bake our cake, kind of a thing, right? Or you will no longer be in business. We are going to bankrupt you. We are going to ruin you. So they crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? (laughs) All right, well, take it from there. There's more name-calling. But uh, verses 1 through 7, I think, spotlights that fools mock the consequences of sin. All right, it's not limited to the Old Testament either. New Testament, Philippians 3.19. We'll have this coming up in our Philippians class. Sunday morning and Wednesday night in Philippians. 
Sunday morning and Wednesday night in Philippians. We're not quite to, well, we're still in chapter 2. Um, chapter 3, there's a positive example. You want to follow that example. There's a negative example. You want to avoid that example. And so um, Paul talks about himself as the positive example here in verses 12 through 15 because he's following the example of Christ, which is what we get in the kenosis passage of chapter 2. And then there's the negative example. So Philippians 3.15 says, Therefore let us, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. If anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Us, you, me, all of us, following the example of Christ. Let's keep living to Christ's example because there's another example. Brethren, join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. All right? Now, do you think those are unbelievers? Those are outsiders? Why, why is Paul weeping so much? Okay? These are people that used to walk the right way, and they're not walking that way anymore. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, that verse makes no sense whatsoever if he's just describing a bunch of sinning unbelievers and a bunch of, you know, pagans and whatever. Obviously, they set their minds on earthly things. What do you expect? They're unbelievers. But believers who are commanded to set their mind on the things above, Colossians 3.1, here they are setting their mind on earthly things. And even though they, they should not be enemies with God. They put themselves in that position. Friendship with the world is, is en- enmity. You, you make yourself an enemy of God. And this is what they're doing. So I often told you and now tell you even weeping. It's heartbreaking when you see believers that know better walking, serving the adversary. They are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. We're not saying they've lost their salvation, they're going to die and go to hell. We're saying that they're going to die the sin and the death. That they're going through the present wrath of God. Whose God is their appetite. And that's what happens. (laughs) All right. And yet, they're boasting about it. Whose glory is in their shame. What do you brag about? What do you brag about? Okay. When you're in fellowship, hopefully, you're bragging in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I brag about you guys. I brag about Austin Bible Church. I brag about um, you know, my wife and my kids and all the, all the things, that, the good things there are to brag about because it's boasting in Christ. It's a testimony to grace and it's great stuff. Okay, now what about when you're carnal? What do you brag about? <laughs> okay? what, uh, what are you proud of? What do you, uh, you know, you're, you're, you, you boast in what? Okay, you boast in your, um, ooh, let me tell you about my great Scrabble plays from Monday night, okay? And uh, I've got to make sure I don't go carnal there because, uh, you know, there's a temptation to, to brag in earthly things. Uh, you brag about your, your money. You brag about your career success. You brag about your, uh, you know, your good looks or whatever. I mean, whatever. People brag about things. Sinners bragging about their sin is a problem. <laughs> That's not good. That's fools mocking at sin. They glory in their shame. To me, these you know gay pride parades and stuff, that's that verse right there. 
Okay? Their shame is what they're glorying in. They're celebrating it. They're boasting it. Boasting in it. Who set their minds on earthly things. All right. And then finally, 2 Peter 2, verses 13 and 15. 2 Peter 2. Second Peter 2, much like the book of Jude, they're very parallel. Uh, I think Peter borrowed from Jude when he wrote Second Peter and incorporated a lot of Jude's material in this second chapter. Other people think Jude borrowed from Second Peter, but it doesn't make sense to me. I think it goes the other way. Anyway, there's people to be warning about. False prophets arose among the people. Just as there will also be, this is verse 1 of chapter 2, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So look out for these guys. That's why you've got to know the truth. That's why you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that when the, when the Holy Spirit communicates to your human spirit, then when this other stuff comes out that the Holy Spirit's not communicating, your human spirit's on the alert and says, wait a minute, that's not right who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. The master who bought them. Pay attention to that. Because they've been redeemed. They've been purchased. Bringing swift destruction upon themselves. All right. And uh, so in the course of this warning, there's a lot that comes in here, but when you get down, uh, that's why we need to be rescued. That's why we need a present salvation from, uh, from sin temptations. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Um, all right. More description of these guys. In verse 10, they're daring. You know, think Lamech and his boasts we saw earlier. They're self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Playing with demons, teaching the doctrine of demons. Not even trembling to mess with that kind of thing. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Michael was not going to dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. He just said, he just backed off and said, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 12, these like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. And how sad is that? When God gives you over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, think about it. Carnal humanity becomes animalistic and worse. Become animalistic and worse. Carnal humans will do things an animal wouldn't do. And how, uh, how unnatural is that? Like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed. Purpose clause, what's the purpose of animals? Never mind. All right. I will enjoy eating animals later and quote this verse. The purpose for that animal. All right. Reviling where they have no knowledge. Okay. Uh, Will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Verse 13. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. You ever think about that? 
What is that expression talking about? Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. In other words, they're getting, they're reaping what they're sowing, but they still sow. They'll take it. They gladly accept it as the wages. Sign me up, I'll take that. It's to them, that's the cost of doing business. And they're fine and dandy with paying that cost because they're going to keep doing that business. They're happy with that. And uh, wow. So they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. You know, early on in their sin, they at least had the decency to do it at night, do it under darkness, to, you know, kind of be discreet about it. So, you know, try to maintain some kind of public decency and, and, uh, you get to this point in your darkness, you don't even care. Throw it right out there in the open, full public view. Let everybody can watch. Make everybody watch. Demand that they celebrate what you're doing. Okay? <laughs> so uh, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. That's where they get the thrill. That's where they get the party. They're reveling. We've got another party turn coming up in um, the delight from, 14, from 9b, and I've got to hurry to get us there, we're running out of time. Um, but reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. It's just nonstop. <laughs> you know, take a break, it's, you know, and yet it's that, that dissatisfaction, the soul dissatisfaction that happens when you're just saturated with this that you can't stop. You need your next one, you need your next one, you need your next one. More, sooner. Because the highs are getting smaller and the, the, the lows are getting lower and you've got to get another fix faster, sooner. Okay, Sin does the same thing that drugs do. Or maybe I should say that they went around. Drugs do the same thing sin does. Alright. Uh, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Trained. Like training your spiritual gift, you can train your carnality. You can develop an appetite for things that are not natural, but you do them enough and now you've trained your heart. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, following the way of Balaam. The son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. All right, it goes on. There's more from there. Um, So, verse 13, verse 15 have, I think, the key points. Uh, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, uh, reveling in the daytime. It just shows the principle that fools are mocking the consequences of sin. Then the last part, Proverbs uh, 14, 9. Now the B portion of verse 9, the, the second half of this poetry. So fools mock at sin, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, among the upright, among the upright... I'm not really dazzled by the translation goodwill. Uh, Among the upright there is delight, favor. Okay, goodwill, whatever. I prefer favor or delight, okay? Among the upright there is delight. I'm going to stick with that. The Hebrew is ratzon, a gathering of upright ones. Notice collectively, it's not just one uh, wise person by himself, it is a group among the upright, collectively. 
I'm in the Word of God, you're in the Word of God, together we're in the Word of God, and we can delight in that. We can fellowship in the Word of God. And there is a delight. So, you know, you come up to somebody on a Sunday morning, you say, hey, give me a verse. Okay, Linty did that with me on Sunday. Give me a verse. You know, and so you throw it back and you give them a verse. Now you give me a verse and then they throw it back. And then, and so what you're doing is you're delighting. You have a mutual delight in the things of God. We've already studied Ratzon uh, in Proverbs 11.1 and Proverbs 12.2. We've had two previous Ratzon studies. If you might recall, we can look at those. Proverbs 11.1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So God himself uh, has ratzon. God himself has a, a frame of reference for what he hates and what he likes, for what he pushes away and what he draws close. Remember, a, uh, an abomination is something you're pushing away. You want it far from you. You're pushing it far away. That's an abomination. Whereas a ratzon is something you are embracing. It's a delight. It's fun. You want more of it, right? Ratzon. And, and so that imagery, a false balance versus a just weight, uh, honest, equitable business dealings, for example, um, what God pushes away or what God hugs. So the ratzon is a delight. The ratzon, you want more of it. It tastes great, okay? Chocolate, I want more. Brussels sprouts, no thank you. Okay? Whatever the case may be, the things you push away, the things you, you take seconds. And among the upright, the gathering of the upright ones, wow. You mean we only have five, seven, uh, four sessions a week, five sessions a week? Couldn't we have six? Couldn't we have seven? We only have three prayer meetings? Couldn't we have four? Couldn't we have five? Because they are a delight. They are something that we want to embrace. We want to draw closer to us. Chapter 12 and verse 2. A good man will obtain favor. That's Ratzon. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. Okay? So are we conducting our life in such a way that, uh, you know, are we a sweet-smelling savor? Are we, do we find favor with God? And it's different. It's different than, um, it's not grace, Sometimes grace is rendered as favor. This is specifically a, um, a, a, a stimulus. This is, this is a taste, a, an aroma, a flavor, a smell. Uh, this, is a, this is a stimulus whereby the person who uh, tastes or smells or feels or hears, uh, a person whose senses evaluate the stimulus is then triggered into pushing away response or the embracing response. And so this is that kind of a favor whereby, hmm, that smells good, right? Ooh, that tastes good. Ooh, that feels good. Ooh, that sounds great, okay? And this is, this is a thrill. I mean, this is, um, to me, it's, it's, it's the richness of how God created us. It's the, uh, it's the nature of why do we have the senses that we have for flavors and aromas and touch and the things that feel and, and all of that. Why? Why did God design us that way? See, I think it's, it's a reflection of Him and His own sensibilities, His own capacity to interface with His creation. 
Things smell good, things smell bad. Things taste good, things taste bad. Things feel good, things feel bad. Things look good, things look bad. Okay? And, uh, and so we develop this. We develop this taste. We develop this um, capacity. And he wants us to develop that capacity. All right, if you want more on Ratzon, um, let me just give a couple of these early Levitical ones and then we'll save the bulk of these, I think, for, for next week. Um, just remember that a, a delight is a favorable, acceptable thing which impels someone to embrace it close. It is a, it's, a, it's, it's a thing that acts as a stimulus that triggers a response from somebody that has the capacity to smell it, taste it, see it, feel it, right? Uh, You've got to have the capacity to, to, to do that. If, if you don't have the capacity, then, you know, and, you know, different kinds of music, and I just have never developed an appreciation for them. Different genres, I suppose I could develop that. I suppose I could learn those genres of music. I could learn the style I could learn. And then once I do, then I have capacity to enjoy it if it's done well. Or have the capacity to not enjoy it if it's not being done well. But for the time being, in my ignorance of that whole genre, I can't tell you if it's good or not. Right? And that's why as we train in the wisdom of God, we're developing our capacity like God's developed His capacity to, to, in the things of the Word of God to really appreciate the things, the delights as, uh, as he lays them out there. Okay. Anyway, time and time again in Leviticus, ratzon is the term that's used of a sweet-smelling savor, of something that is acceptable to God. And so uh, you have it in Leviticus 1.3, Leviticus 19.5, Leviticus, um, there's, there's several uses, 22, a lot of uses in 22. But I think... Um, you know what I'm talking about here. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall uh, offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Ratzon. And so the idea of what a sacrifice that God will welcome and accept and embrace or an abomination that he's going to push away. is an abomination, strange fire. He wants nothing to do with that. Well, if you worship him according to his design, it's right's own. We appreciate that. All right. We'll do the rest of those Levitical uses next week. There's a whole string of them in the Psalms. Um, Proverbs 8.35, by the way, was used of Jesus uh, in the hypostatic union that uh, God the Son was begotten of the Father and that he was daily his delight playing before him. Okay, As any father who's watching his child Uh, He takes delight in this child. He watches this child play. And that's the language that's used of the father and the son in Proverbs chapter 8. And so the father was delighted in the son. The son was delighted in the father. And uh, it's a a good use there in Proverbs 8. 13 times altogether in Proverbs 10 through 19. So it's going to become a a common feature. We've had it in 11, in 12, now we get it in 14. And uh, there's going to be 10 more after that between here and chapter 19. So you're going to get a lot more of that coming up. All right. Any questions? Comments? Criticisms? Complaints? All right.
had a drill sergeant that would say that. Any comments, questions, complaints, financial donations? Yes, sir? I do have a comment on what you're saying about the chapters of Genesis. Uh-huh. And after Noah, it wasn't just the rainbow and Tesla husband. That's when we get barbecue, too. So Genesis 9 includes the rainbow, capital punishment, and you're right, barbecue. We get to eat meat. We get to eat meat after Genesis chapter 9. I am a post-Genesis 9 believer. Thank you for that. All right, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, uh, just thank you for all that you do to open the eyes of our understanding. And Father, I pray that not only will we have an academic recognition of fools and their mocking of sin. Father, I ask that this doctrine would have an impact for each one of us, Father, that you would be at work provoking us to be uh, prayerful, to become intercessors, to, to uh, grieve and weep over our loved ones that are uh, described in the verses we saw today. And Father, we've got family members, we've got friends, and they are, they are mocking and uh, in open defiance. And yet, Father, they know better, or they used to know better. They are born again. They are your children. They will be in heaven when they die. But Father, we don't want to see that death happen uh, by virtue of the sin and the death. We don't want to see that miserable death whose end is destruction. Father, we don't want to see that. We want to see the sorrow that leads to repentance. We want to see a brand snatched from the fire. And so, Father... uh, take hold of this message and the ones we have coming up in the book of Hebrews. Similar, similar warnings in Hebrews, Father. We want to we be impacted by these doctrines so that we can become the, the intercessors on their behalf. And uh, if they're not going to confess today, then we confess for them. Father, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll confess on their behalf what they're doing and, and pleading, Father, that you would uh, bring them back to the light. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen.